Hey, how about this, fans? Welcome back to an all-new episode of How About This. And on this week's episode, Jordan and I venture into our November melancholy. That is right. We are talking about a director today that just represents the fall and autumn and just the perfect mixture of sadness and joy and, and obsessive attention to detail. We're talking about one of our favorite film directors of all time who just released a movie not too long ago called The French Dispatch. And on this week's episode, we give you a real nice Owen Wilson wow as we talk about Wes Anderson. Hey, how about this listeners, folks on the internet who like things? We're back. It's a whole new episode. And Jordan and I are getting into our November melancholy with this episode, (laughs) I think is the best way to describe this. How you doing, bud? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm excited for this one. I'm good. And, uh... We're going to talk about a director today. So this is going to be very similar to the Quentin Tarantino episode, but we're, we're tackling a different director. We are ta- talking to the Mr. Fantastic Jordan Hugh. The fantastic Mr. Jordan Hugh uh, is, on, is on today as, as one of the best and most fantastic co-hosts of all time. <laughs> I couldn't decide which of the Tannenbaums you would be because, to be honest, you're kind of all of the kids in, right. some, wonder- in some way. W- wonderful. <laughs> I, I think you could probably be Richie Tannenbaum. I think we'll put you there. But you know what? Uh, Mike is sitting here. He's in his tracksuit and uh, and uh, and he's wearing a headband. How about that? Yeah. You know what? I am very close to uh, being in a tracksuit because I did just get out of the gym after this. So <laughs> so it's very it's very nice. And I'll just give you a nice real wow. Uh, if, oh, if we really want to do that. So there you go. You we are Owen, talking sure. about Wes Anderson uh, himself today. The Wes Anderson, who I believe as a director is very much an acquired taste. I think oh, yeah. we millennial hipster types, and I hate putting myself in that category, but come on, it's it's just kind of kind of the way it goes. Um, we millennial hipster types kind of embraced this guy when we were teenagers, yeah, and got really into his stuff. And while we continue to really love and support a lot of the other directors that we've come to love over the years, I feel like Anderson is an as a director who has not really strayed from his style really at all. Mm-hmm. And has continued to make these these like I said I I use the term November melancholy to describe our mood and I think that's kind of part of what makes his movies so enjoyable. There are these melancholy experiences that are about the mundane, and but also because of that, there's so much intrigue and they they end up all being so heartwarming. How about this, listeners? As as you kind of already know, this this show kind of just becomes whatever Mike and I want to talk about. So we I don't think we ever plan to have this kind of like interior series going on where we like cover directors we like but that seems to be a thing that we'll do on occasion so yeah if you haven't listened to our episode on quentin tarantino i'm going to recommend that you check that one out because this episode is going to be very similar to that where we don't we don't really do this with anything else where we take one person's body of work and then say what would we do if we were that person or recommend things for that person so i guess I don't know if this would be fun for you, listener, but you could you could go back and listen to the Tarantino one and then listen to this one. And, and those two will match, even though this show probably doesn't really match our other shows. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a little different. And I think we will do more of these because we do like you and I like directors a lot. Like we're yeah, we're definitely yeah. of the people that we obviously like film. But we we very much like directors. There are directors that we we love and have followed for years. So I could definitely see us doing after Anderson. I can definitely see us doing. Well, at least Del Toro, Del Toro, and, um, Kevin Smith, 
Right. We uh, have a lot of favorites. Taika Waititi. Uh, Edgar Wright. Edgar yeah. Wright. Like all those guys. Like I could see us tackling all those guys. These kind of offbeat weirdo uh, film directors, you know, you know ner- nerds, nerds and hipsters, man. Nerds and hipsters. Yeah. Nerds and hipsters. I don't know if we're going to do like a Spielberg, even though I actually have a great idea for a Spielberg episode. Yeah, that's it's just I love Spielberg. How could you yeah. not? He's like Mr. Movie. But it's um, that's such a big career. You know, with these guys, like actually one of the things I was excited about this morning when we were recording is that with Wes Anderson, this is a guy like I've actually seen all his films. Like, yeah, you can can sit for like a week or two and be like, oh, 11 movies. I could watch that with Mm -hmm. Spielberg. It's like you would just it would be just the undertaking would just be too huge. And a lot of them are very long. Like, I feel like a lot of Anderson stuff is is not necessarily short, but they're these tight little storybook experiences that he kind of gives you like Wes Anderson is giving you like short novels in the form of movie, I think. And he, yeah. his emphasis is there's so much emphasis on detail. Obviously, there's so much emphasis on this kind of rapid fire dialogue, which I can only assume. And I have never read a Wes Anderson script. He has to punctuate it a certain way or train the actors to speak in the manner that works within his films. And I'm not 100 percent clear on whether or not that happens. But or he just picks actors that very easily fit that mold. I think that's it. I th- you know, uh, Wes Anderson famously is one of these auteur directors that has what they call like the production posse. Right. Yeah. Which is just like this guy hires the same dozen people yeah. to do every movie, whether those people are behind the camera collaborators or they are on screen. It's the same people every time. And they have really captured. Yeah, exactly what you said. Kind of this rapid fire, very dry delivery yeah. of lines. Yeah. And that is it, it kind of puts all of his films in the same common world yeah. where you're like, even if if someone that this is what we love about this guy. If you were just shown a scene and not told what movie it was from, who directed it, whatever, you'd be like, this is a Wes Anderson film. Oh, like yeah. you would just know from the way the actors are talking. And, exactly. and what the shot looks like. One hundred percent agreed, like especially as we get further along through his ten, his uh, his filmography, it's like when you look at like Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, even the Royal Tenenbaums doesn't really get to like this kind of weird pop up book stop motion kind of feel. But especially it, it, it gets more and more explicit as we make our way down the down the filmography. And by the time sure. you're looking at The Life Aquatic and you're looking at Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, you're starting to see like all of his movies in general even if they're live action, there's an animation to everything he does and the way in which yeah. things are shot and the way colors are represented and the way rooms are structured and the symmetry of it all. It's 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 beautiful because not only is Wes Anderson a, a great film director, but he also is like a master artist working right. on this, this very strange craft that is so unique to him. Yeah. Which is what makes his movies so exciting when they come out. Like when you see a trailer for a Wes Anderson movie, you're seeing like these little pop up buildings pop up and people in the windows and they're doing stuff and they're going about their day to day lives. And there's these little fun little stories and nuances that happen in kind of the day to day life of it all. You really notice that that's kind of where the beauty is, right? His it's kind of it's it's very much in the uh, I believe it's John Lennon uh, life is what happens when you're busy doing other things and I feel like yeah. that's very mm-hmm. much the Wes Anderson kind of feel of how his movies are there are moments of joy there are moments of sadness in his films but in general he gives you this giant this kind of you know quiet positivity to all of it yeah his movies have this sort of common theme of cheerful cynicism yeah 
right? Where um, there is a jocularity, there's a, a joyfulness, but like the movies are overtly very cynical. Yeah, and, definitely. And even quite dark, even in the kids' films. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those themes that he deals with from film to film, you know, parental abandonment issues, feeling like an outsider, th- these kind of things are all handled in this comically serious way. And again, and this is, a, I'm saying this as a positive, it gives all of his films this um, this feel that you're, you're, they're all in the same world somehow, mm-hmm. that like the rules of Wes Anderson's universe are common to one another. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the case with a lot of our tour directors. We actually said the exact same thing on our Tarantino podcast, though he does that a little bit more on purpose where he's like, all my films take place in this one yeah. universe, which is the same thing Kevin Smith does. And a lot of these guys do that. But with Wes Anderson particularly, it's even more like with the themes of his films, it's almost like he kind of has the same thing to say, but new things to say about it each time, which has been great. And then as as you already acknowledged, Mike, like the art style of these films are really, really particular, even in just how they're shot. He doesn't use Dutch angles ever. It's always the, the widest possible lens. Everything is super centered. There's like this obsessive compulsive attention to detail, even background detail. All of his films are set in very ambiguous time periods like you have costuming that is from every decade of the 20th century you're not really sure when anything takes place even when he's had to be a little bit more particular like with grand budapest and being like hey this movie takes place between world war one and world war two it is the most stylized version of a particular period that you could have where it's like oh but this looks so wes anderson it does <laughs> you know? it, it looks incredibly wes anderson and so very much like like you said it's ambiguous and even yeah. where these movies take place can sometimes be ambiguous it's it's very much in this little this little perfect little keep saying pop-up book but that's kind of what it feels like it's like a perfect little pop-up book world Mm -hmm. and uh, obviously that's shown the most in like the fantastic mr fox but i really think that he does some really amazing things and let's talk about that right so do you have a favorite of his films so yeah i thought i thought we could do a little bit of ranking um so this is Wes Anderson is one of only a handful of directors that I've actually seen all of their movies. And the only reason I've been able to accomplish that is because Wes Anderson is a director who has only made movies in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I happen to have been around at all the times they were being released. So I didn't see them in order. Uh, And I guess we'll combine this with our personal experiences with with Wes Anderson. Sure, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So the first Wes Anderson film I ever saw was Rushmore which was the movie most people saw because it it had this big wide release. Uh, He got a huge push after Bottle Rocket, which I did not see until much later. I haven't seen Um, Bottle Rocket, so. It's it's good. It's sweet. It's... um, he's not Wes Anderson yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's, it's a good I, yeah. movie. I feel like he, he even in Rushmore, it's, he's getting there, you know? Well, he's he's super, super getting there. A, a lot of those things that we see, even yeah. just in the next film, Royal Tenenbaums, are there in, in Rushmore. My favorite uh, Wes Anderson film, this is difficult because favorite and best comes into play. We always yeah. have this argument. Yeah. Well, so here's the problem. I think his best film is The Grand Budapest Hotel. I think, I think that's right. That's his masterpiece, I yeah, think. And I, sure. I think a lot of people would say that. So I love that movie. I can throw it on any time. It's also a deeply sad film. So that is tough. Um, I think my favorite is Fantastic Mr. Fox. I really think that's my favorite Wes Anderson film. It's very good. Yeah. And especially um, this time of year, it's like the perfect time to watch it. Sure. Actually, this uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is sort of the reason why we decided to do Wes Anderson now in November. Yeah, I feel like I watched the Fantastic Mr. Fox like every thanksgiving Same. like i watch it's, it that weekend yeah. without it's a, a perfect doubt. fall movie it's a perfect and a tangent there needs to be more thanksgiving movies there's not a lot yeah there's like planes trains and automobiles there's fantastic mr fox <laughs> and then there's thanks killing which we made you rent twice <laughs> three twice by accident in the same day for full price i hated it 
<laughs> and it was bad. It was bad. Thanks killing was so bad. Like that was wasn't bad. even like enjoyably bad. It was just a waste of nine dollars. We were looking for just a stupid afternoon and we did not have a good time with that. No, it was definitely not. Not not a good thanks. Thanks killing was not a great Thanksgiving movie. But yeah, no, there aren't really that many Thanksgiving movies just because I don't know. I think it's because when you're releasing stuff worldwide, it's like no one else really celebrates something yeah, it's, like it's an American American holiday. Since it's it's yeah. an American holiday, you kind of lose like we were having a conversation as the band the other day about with uh, with someone who follows us who's in England and or the UK in general. And he was just like, oh, yeah, they've been playing Christmas music since November 1st. And we're like, oh, you know, obviously the the average American response is too early. It's too early. And my response is like not in the UK. They don't celebrate Thanksgiving, so they don't have that that sure. mid of middle of the road holiday. But yes, you're right. We do need more Thanksgiving movies. We do. I think it would um, be great. Yeah. And then my third or, or my runner up, which is hilarious to call any of his films like a runner up because they're all so good, is um, Moonrise Kingdom. I I, yeah. I adore Moonrise Kingdom. It's a beautiful movie. And I think I appreciate the aesthetics of Moonrise Kingdom almost more than anything else. But again, I've seen all his movies. I really love all of them. There are a couple I like a little bit less, but I, I think my favorite is Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is an unusual first pick for um, a Wes Anderson fan. I am acknowledging the greatness of Grand Budapest Hotel, but it, it is Fantastic Mr. Fox for me. I, I think I think mine is very similar to yours. I think I would probably put Grand Budapest Hotel just above Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. I saw him at Fantastic Mr. Fox first. That's the first movie. Of, of that was your first that, Wes Anderson? That I saw, and then wow. I went back and watched everything else wow. and fantastic mr F- wow wow fantastic mr fox is like what it's like 12 years old at this point so i saw it on uh, thanksgiving 2009 weekend. yeah just about yeah i saw it on thanksgiving weekend in 2009 with my brother um we had gone we were like i had already seen that weekend i had seen earlier i, I saw the, the road and i was just wow. like not in a great film <laughs> going move depressing as hell <laughs> this like the most depressing movie i've ever seen ever it's just it's just they just they just take the depression meter and just crank it to like 50 and i wasn't in the mood to see the movie but i'm like you know what let's just go see fantastic mr fox it looks great i want to see it so we saw it we absolutely loved it and it made me a wes anderson fan uh it made me go back and and watch all his movies and except for i haven't like i said i haven't seen bottle rocket and it allows me it made me go out and see you know everything that comes out like as it comes out now i haven't seen french dispatch because french dispatch came out on a very at a very strange time in terms of like what movies were coming out. And I was like, right. I wanted to go see Last Night in Soho because I like Edgar Wright so much. And I wanted to see Dune and I wanted to see. And there was like stuff showing up on Disney Plus that I wanted to see. And then I had to get yeah. prepared for Ghostbusters. So You're I busy. haven't seen the movie. Yeah. yeah, I know. But I, I should have seen it. I, I want to see the French Dispatch. That movie looks amazing. But. Yeah, that I would say that I think Grand Budapest is number one. And then for me, I think I think it's fantastic. Mr. Fox. And then for like, if I'm going to go third, it, it might be up a toss up between Royal Tenenbaums and uh, Moonrise Kingdom. I think they're both very, very yeah. good. I think the style of like you said, of Moonrise Kingdom is really great. And I think Edward Edward Norton's actually wonderful in that movie. He um, is. Uh, and it's just one of those things where I love how like I don't think he was in the earlier films of Anderson. I feel like that was his first, but he fits the mold. Uh, so incredibly well, but I might be mm-hmm. wrong about that. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and think, but it's great. This guy puts out like a movie every couple of years and you know, it's going to be a nice little time and it's going to be a very comfortable, cozy kind of movie. I, unlike you really love Isle of Dogs, but I understand that you're, that's not your favorite. Uh, 
No, no, I, I like Isle of Dogs. It's just, it was not, yeah, not my favorite. I, I think it's a great movie. I, I think it's worthy of his, you know, sort of canon of films. It's not not my favorite, Wes Anderson. Yeah, so I, I actually really like that movie as well. I, I It's funny, because the more you watch of him, the more you're like, did this guy just want to be an animator? Like, did he just want to make animated movies? And maybe he did. Maybe he did. But yeah, that would probably be my definitive ranking. You know, at the bottom, I don't know. It's kind of hard uh, what you would put at the bottom, but I don't, I don't really care to rank where I would say my lowest of, of the Wes Anderson movies are, because at that point, it's just, you know, kind of splitting hairs and getting into it. But what? Oh, I mean, my least favorite is The Life Aquatic, uh, yeah. just because I, I I think it's, again, very, very good. I just I did not appreciate that movie in maybe the same way that other people have. Some people adore Life Aquatic. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard that some people call that the best one. And I know that that one is a little uh, divisive, so that's that's very interesting to see, to see that. And you know what? It's it's Bill Murray who you know tends to be like he at, at the beginning was at least one of his go to guys. He's um, he's still because he's so heavily featured in French Dispatch. But it's um, uh, Bill Murray is such a weird core actor to base strange. things off of. We were just talking about this with Ghostbusters because he's such a weird lead. He's such a it's like, I don't, I'm not sure what you're going for. Cause you could really get anything out of him. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, and he feel like he hit his stride with the Wes Anderson stuff with that kind of like quiet sarcasm. Right. So this has now, yeah, throughout. this has now been the whole back end of his career is either playing like the parody version of himself Yeah. when he's doing like zombie land stuff, or he's doing, I'm sure what we'll see in ghostbusters afterlife, what we saw in 2016 ghostbusters, what we see when, when he does things like a very Bill Murray Christmas for Netflix, whatever the hell that is, where he's just kind of riffing on the fact like, Hey, isn't it funny that I'm Bill Murray, which is I guess fun when you're in your you know seventies or he's doing this really quiet, very, very dry bone dry performance stuff that he does in the Wes Anderson movies. Exactly. And it seems like Wes was able to get this stuff out of him. And it's, it's kind of great. Uh, looking at the filmography, though, I am very excited for his next film, which is just called Asteroid City, which sounds like it's right up my alley. So <laughs> you call I mean, a movie Asteroid City, I'm in. You, I'm, I'm, I'm there. In. I hope Bruce Willis is in it. And I hope they have to drill in the asteroid to save the planet. I love Armageddon. I would watch that right now. That's like such a huge bad movie that I will oh, still watch. Armageddon is like the king of bad movies. Like I love Armageddon <laughs> to the point where I have to sit there and think, I'm like, is Armageddon bad? Yeah, it is. I don't know. That's the only other movie that I can compare to like Independence Day yes. for being like a movie that is so huge and sloppy and it doesn't really work, but everyone fucking loves it and watches it all the time anyway. That's that's Armageddon for me who, as well, who, for sure. Who cares? Who cares? Actually, you know what? If we're ever going to combine something with the Fast and the Furious, oh, Arm- fuck, Armageddon, yeah. Armageddon. We, we, Mike, we can't, and we I can't know. turn Wes Anderson into another Fast and the Furious podcast. We can't <laughs> no, do it. No, we can't. We don't even like those movies. <laughs> what's what's funny is yeah what's funny is we we don't like the fast and the furious but dom and dom and the crew and the rock and everybody else come up in almost every show we've recorded it's just because it's too funny okay so what's so your first what's your first experience with anderson and like give us your give us your kind of your vibe here so uh, you know i i think i've mentioned this on this show before but like i made like an active choice like in late middle school <laughs> to be like i'm gonna know stuff about film and wes anderson was like the hot director at that time it was like 1998 Rushmore had just come out everybody was like gotta go see Rushmore so that was like the thing that I watched um that was like my whole deal uh and I was like this is good and then I I just kind of have spent my life now eagerly anticipating the next Wes Anderson property I I didn't 
love the French dispatch. I thought it was good. It is very, uh, I, I hesitate to criticize. It's like almost Wes Anderson parody. It's almost oh, wow. like, it's oh, wow. almost like he's like, oh, I'm Wes Anderson. I better do the most Wes Anderson movie I could do. So it's got, it's got all of his things in there. Like, and cause it's, it's basically four vignettes. So it's like yeah. four Wes Anderson movies. So it literally uses everything uh the costume porn the notion of the caper uh bittersweet ending everyone doing the dramatic deadpan ride deliveries right up uh, sure parental abandonment issues all the scenery porn that he likes to do stop motion animation uh you know characters smoking the the desplot style score you know all that stuff is there it's it's good it's just like it's a little less it's not as authentic. I don't. I don't feel the feelings in French Dispatch the way I used to. Interesting. You know? That's that's like that's if a his take. if his most sentimental movies are like um, Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest and, and those films. Um, I would say like French Dispatch is like his least sentimental movie. Oh wow. Oh wow. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at with Anderson currently. Is that what you wanted to know? Was that yeah? Your no, oh, absolutely, okay. yeah. absolutely. I think that's that's a great answer, and uh, hopefully, Asteroid City. Brings a little bit more of that in. Who knows what the hell that is? I don't know. Who knows? It's Project Asteroid City. I also like the name of the French Dispatch. Is not just the French French Dispatch. It's the French Dispatch of Liberty, Kansas Evening Evening Sun. So it's like, so, yeah, that so, becomes important. Yeah, yeah. So like that's the. It's like that in and of itself is very Wes Anderson, where there's there's this long title. And, yeah. So you know, four vignettes and all that stuff. That I liked um, that part I, I like, and that is ultimately what the film explores. And I wish they had gone a little bit further and no spoilers for French dispatch. This was this is the setup is that these are all writers who are expatriates, right? They're all yeah. basically, I believe, either American or no, I think they're, I think they're all American. I think one writer might be uh, British in the film, uh, but these are all people who uh, have moved away and they are covering events as they take place in France. Um, so it's it's very much a part of his other films because it's still being like you're an outsider. You know what I mean? None of his films are about well-adjusted people who fit in. And no. if there is a character like that, they're usually the villain. Right. So his movies are actually, they're sort of very Tim Burton-esque where yeah. the lens that you get is always from the main character. Who's like, my life is dysfunctional. I'm dysfunctional. I don't fit in, but I'm going to try to make this work. And almost all these films I would say all of the films do not resolve with the person fitting in. They kind of resolve with this kind of like bittersweet. You find happiness, even though it's still not quite right. It's it's cool. It's really cool. It is very cool. And makes you just want to say, wow. Wow. So we're, we've gotten through our, our history here. We know what what we love about Wes Anderson, what we want to do. Uh, Jordan, if you don't have any other like anything else on your hit list of things we need to hit. Uh, I think it's pitch time. Yeah, I think we could pitch this. Who's going first? Go for it, my man. Sure. Okay. So how about this? Ooh. Wow. 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 Again, because I'm operating from the perspective that Fantastic Mr. Fox is my favorite Wes Anderson film, and I'm looking for him to either adapt more properties because Fox is a uh, Roald Dahl story. Yep. Um, or to do more stop motion, I have two properties that I think are really rife for adaptation by Wes Anderson. Oh, baby. Which which would surprise me if he hadn't looked into these yet. I'm going to do the more well-known property first and then the more obscure property second. So I have two sort of mini pitches that I'll combine into my presentation, so to speak. I love it. 
So one of the things that Wes Anderson does really well is sort of a nautical theme. I like how he depicts uh, seascape and, and deals with the water communities by the water. We, of course, see that in Life Aquatic, but that's also a big part of like Moonrise Kingdom and even to some lesser extent in the other films as well. I just I think he does nautical well. He does. So there is a book of some popularity and some listeners may already know about this, but there is a book which was later made into a sort of a hit Broadway play. And the, uh, the, the, the novel has a different name than the play. The novel is called Peter and the Star Catchers. So uh, yeah, I'm pitching uh, Peter and the Star Catchers, which uh, hilariously is the play I'm directing right now at yes. my high school. It's so good. And it was like the stars, haha, sort of aligned when we were like, we're going to record a Wes Anderson thing. And I was like, oh, I'm directing like a play that is very Wes Anderson style. So this play, so this is based on a novel called Peter and the Star Catchers by... Uh, Dave Barry and Ridley Pearson, which was a hit kids book. Uh, I believe a short series came from the first novel. These are all books that are, by the way, like they're prequels to the Peter Pan story. Mm -hmm. But these are sort of very distinctly not Disney. And and that original book is actually kind of mean. Yeah. Uh, and it got Disney-fied. And I, I don't dislike the Disney version. I think the Disney version is beautiful, but it's it's definitely its own thing. So Peter and the Starcatcher was a play on Broadway circa actually 2009-ish. It's 2010, somewhere in there, um, directed by Alex Timbers. And Alex Timbers has this really distinct, beautiful directing style that has been noted many, many a time. But when I think about the things that make great Wes Anderson films, it's kind of all there because it has this really bespoke, really distinct style of the actors kind of create the world around them. So in the play Peter and the Starcatcher, like if you need a cabin inside of a ship, you create that out of ropes. Yeah. If you need a crocodile while you're in Neverland, you make that out of like two like used car pennants and you do two big lanterns, uh, red lanterns to make the eyes. Like it's all really insular. Then I'm going to add this in. So my favorite band currently is uh, the Decemberists, mm -hmm. the folk rock band, the Decemberists. And they're a nautical themed band as well, or at least have been at many a times. They go through phases, right? So they have a couple of albums, particularly Castaways and Cutouts, uh, Her Majesty and Picaresque, which are all a lot of sea shanties, a lot of like music based in sea shanty. And here I am and I'm directing this play and I'm listening to the Decemberists and I'm thinking there's a Wes Anderson film in here. So my pitch is that I think Wes Anderson should adapt Peter and the Starcatcher uh, or, or he can keep the original title Peter and the Starcatchers for film. And uh, I think for this pitch, for this half of this pitch, this is not a stop motion film. This is actually this would be a live action film, but it would be filmed in a very unusual way with like very tight framing. Right. So uh, the story of this uh, play, and I won't go into the whole thing because that's not really needed for the whole pitch, is basically like you have the, the first act, which is a sea voyage. Yeah. Uh, of like, uh, you know, trying to uh, one pirate ship, which is crewed by Blackstash, who's going to be Captain Hook one day, is trying to just chase down a trunk that he thinks is full of treasure. It's aboard another ship. It's actually full of what is called star stuff. Star stuff is the stuff that makes wishes come true and turns people into other things and will ultimately turn a, a nameless boy orphan into Peter Pan. And it has this like majesty and magic to it, but it's also this really grimy, crusty show that I'm like, there's a lot of the Wes Anderson flavor in this. You've got the parental abandonment. You have, you know, the, the aspect of the caper. You have planning and stuff like that. I would just love to see 
what Wes Anderson would do, particularly with Peter and the Starcatcher. Also with Peter and the Starcatcher is something I absolutely love. I think it's a great show. I think it's got great character. If you take some of those performances that you would get and you make them more nuanced and you make them more smaller and quieter, I think that it gives you that kind of Wes Anderson vibe. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this right now, Jordan on the air. Uh, so how about this? I was also going to pitch something related to Peter Pan. So (laughs) I think what we need to do, I wanted to do a Peter Pan. Wow. So of course we're on the same wavelength here. I I wanted to do a Wes Anderson, Peter Pan, because I think that Peter Pan is a great story. And I think that unfortunately I feel like it's been mishandled in live action movies many, many, many times. And like you said, the original stories and stuff are kind of grimy and they're nastier than say what we'd expect out of like the Disney-fied version of things. And I, like you, think that Wes Anderson's really good at adapting stuff. And he was really good at adapting. I just want to say I'm stunned that we have such a similar pitch. It's crazy, right? Like of all the properties for adaptation, we both picked Peter Pan or or a version of Peter Pan. A version of Peter Pan. I was I was thinking Pinocchio for a bit. And then I was like, "Eh, you know, Del Toro's doing a Pinocchio. So he'll let him do that. And I was thinking, but I was thinking, yeah, use your stop, not really stop motion, but you can use some of those lovely set pieces. But yeah, let's let's go in all in on Peter and the Star Catcher here. Now, Blackstash, who is the villain who ends up being Captain Hook, who is a ridiculous villain. Yes. Uh, for this for this movie and and, and show he's quite the good. Scene, he, he's the scene stealer, but just yes. in the text in the text alone, boy and Molly, who's the name of the girl, who's basically yeah. like the Wendy surrogate Wendy, character, yeah. is the she's the star catcher. She's the star catcher. So all right. So we gotta we gotta start throwing some casting around then. So who so do you cast w- as as w- Willem Dafoe is Blackstash? Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. I had Willem there's, Dafoe there's as Captain. No Hope. one else to yeah. even consider. I had Willem Dafoe in mind as Captain Hook because I just figure like, all right, Peter, what are you going to do about it? You know, I right. got the hook hand. Um, yeah, he's always been so good at finding young leads who do his dead bad, dead, deadpan thing well. So I actually would have him cast unknowns as boy and and Molly. I don't think I would try to mix that no, up. No, and I think the the younger people he works he's worked with recently are too old at this point yeah, to play I agree. Like kids. But, so but he, um, yeah. His his, uh, you know, cast of colorful characters like they populate the rest of the story really well. Like I I would actually love to see like a Willem Dafoe uh, hook or, or Blackstash. Yeah. Right. As he's known with uh, and I'm, I'm quite serious about this with with Bill Murray as Mr. Smith. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And doing Bill like a Murray deadpan. I guess <laughs> I'm a deadpan. Yeah, Mr. Smith. Know, I think just, it'd be uh, great. I guess just that's just going to have it's how it's going to go. Um, which is a wild change for that character because that's not really what it is on stage. But I think it would be it would be really good. Uh, but I, I brought in the Decemberists just because I was like I, I wanted to hear what their version of a Peter Pan like themed album would sound like. So this is like a side pitch into like convincing the Decemberists to do a, an album based on Peter and the Starcatcher and to give me some some more of that good sea shanty goodness they were doing like 10, 15 years ago. I think if you were to go to the Decemberists like, hey, we want you to do like a nautical themed Peter Pan record, they'd probably be yeah. like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. Sure. If Wes Anderson was like, I need this. I'm sure they'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. We we would do. Imagine if they hate him. They're like, we don't like Wes Anderson. Possible. I guess that's Uh, possible. I don't know. We Um, have to look into this. 
um, Tilda Swinton would be awesome in any number of roles, yes. uh, even even some male roles. But um, of course, there's a, a very funny character called Mrs. Bumbrake, or she could be yes. teacher who is the um, sort of the, the main mermaid once they get to Neverland. Like any of these people he uses, Bob Balaban and Jason Schwartzman and Owen Wilson. And, you know, all these people would just be great. Adrian Brody must play Captain Slank. Captain yes. Slank, if yes. anyone knows the player of the book, is like the nastiest fucking he's not a pirate he's a sailor he's the nastiest grossest sailor ever and the point is that he's worse than hook like you, you like him less than black stash so you're actually kind of rooting for black stash at that yes, point uh, um, absolutely so also adrian brody d- never gets enough credit for his work in the wes anderson films he's always like very fun he is quite good quite yes. quite good uh and and yes he's become a wes anderson guy for sure. So I think I think hearing this, like I can almost see and hear this movie, like as it would work with like a Wes Anderson yeah. thing. Right. And I'm, just I'm picturing so like a sense. lot of like dimly lit ship interior, perfectly framed, tight, tight, detailed shots. Yes, exactly. Tight, exactly. tight, detailed shots. Um, Or if they couldn't do a December's thing. Listen, Alexander Desplat is a, a genius. Of I'm course. sure Desplat has a nautical, grungy, grimy, pirate, themey musical in him. Oh, yeah. I'd love to hear his version of Peter Pan. The idea that we both seem to share is that, like, we want to basically un-Disney-fy, right, the, the Peter Pan well, story in some Wes way, Anderson right? Wes Anderson is good at taking things that seem so out there and fantastic and shrinking it down to kind of like this joyful, mundane, personal vibe, right? Like, like he's so good at taking something that's so big and, like, shrinking it down to the point where it's not it's not really about the giant overarching thing it's kind of about these like interpersonal relationships with these characters and these one character finding their way in this case you know you have boy on his way to eventually becoming peter pan but i think your idea for peter and the star catcher works so much better because it is based kind of in a bit of like reality you know what i mean even like the fantastic mr fox which is an, an entire movie about animals who talk and steal things right Mm -hmm. is is something that's very it feels very real and personal you know, it's mm-hmm. like it's like you have these people who are just trying to make the best for themselves and they but, you know, they still have these these desires for greatness. And I think it's something with Peter Pan that's, that that really hits with Peter yeah. Pan. I think that I think that that's perfect. And I'm very happy that like even our casting is the same. Like, I mean, well, I think once you're once you're looking at those people, it's like, well, it's obvious well, who has to play. I mean, <laughs> certain Willem roles Dafoe has to be black stash. Like 1, there's no other choice. No, there's no other choice. No, absolutely no other choice because he's just so good at playing ridiculous characters yeah uh, it's beautiful you know what bill murray might actually be good as alf uh, i don't yeah. know he might be a good alf i don't know i don't know if i'm totally happy with him as Smee because Smee is like supposed to be kind of um i don't know cutesy and over enthusiastic like that might be like a uh, I wish oh, i wish owen wilson was fat <laughs> yeah yeah just like <laughs> you know just just, it's just me just kind of Smee doesn't have to if this is before he's Smee. maybe it's young Smee. yeah <laughs> it's just, like Mike, that's the pitch. We need to make a movie called Young Smee. Young Smee, Smee. <laughs> Young Smee starring Owen Wilson. Who was Anderson's what if, Young Smee? What about what about Luke Wilson though? Yeah, he's in it. I mean, yeah, you know. you know, he's just a regular sailor. Yeah, he, he's he, he falls off the boat. I gotta say, of the two Wilson brothers, of which there's only ranks one and two, it's Owen as one, and then it's a far drop to two. Well, this is <laughs> like, this is this is getting goddamn ridiculous. I will just say that. <laughs> I I like Luke Wilson. He's just he's just very vanilla compared to Owen, which is he's, already like Owen's kind of vanilla already. Uh, Owen is like vanilla bean or like French vanilla. Wow. Like it's like wow. 
Like it's 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 the better <laughs> of the vanillas. Like if you were to go into a grocery store supermarket and you were look at the at the at the vanilla section of the ice cream because there's always a bunch of them. You have like regular right. straight up vanilla. Then you got vanilla bean, which is probably just the same, but it's got those little black spots in it. Then you got French vanilla, which is usually like a more yellow and gold vanilla. Yeah. So I don't know. I think Owen, if we're, if if the Wilsons are all different types of vanilla ice cream, I think Owen Wilson is is one of the more original and unique vanillas. Understood. All right, we're gonna put a pin in Peter Pan. I did have one other sort yes, of pitch let's with go this. For it. So this was the um, very obscure pitch, and I'd be surprised actually if the listeners knew what I was talking about already. I'm I'm thinking I might be introducing some people to this, so I want to be careful with how I introduce it. We, we did that so- Doomtown already, though. We did. Listen, we have a Doomtown episode that I believe uh, some people listen to. It did well. It's doing well. Doomtown's got some <laughs> listens. Great. I'll say this. You know what? I'm happy we covered Doomtown because like for some people, like that was the first Doom thing, Doomtown thing they'd heard in years. Yeah, that. And then people who didn't know Doomtown were like, this is ridiculous. I want it. Well, you know what? I did get some messages from friends that were like, oh, that sounded really cool. I'm going to kind of go look this up. So we might have helped out a bit. It's because it what it is cool. It is cool. So before I say the the how about this part of my pitch, uh, I have to give like a little story because this this pitch actually doesn't work without context. Uh, Mike and I have a friend, uh, Sean Rubin. Oh, Sean yeah. Rubin yeah, yeah, is yeah. A, a beautiful artist, content creator, writer. Um, he's worked on a lot. He's worked with um, Dave Peterson on Mouse Guard. He's worked. Uh, he's he did Bolivar. Bolivar is a beautiful, beautifully illustrated children's book about a yes. dinosaur living in in New York. Um, and uh he uh, formerly worked with Brian Jakes, the uh, the fantasy author. So uh, Sean's just a, a super, super talented guy. So I was um, kind of following the the cult of Sean at the time, just being like, oh, this guy's career is awesome. And I, I know him personally. And that's when I got introduced to Dave Peterson, who, uh, of course, does Mouse Guard. And then I got introduced to a guy named Jeremy Bastian. Jeremy Bastian is his name. He's, of course, the what I'm getting into is he's the creator of what is called Cursed Pirate Girl. Cursed Pirate Girl is the name of his graphic novel series or his oh, his, com- his comic book. Uh, and Cursed Pirate Girl is wild. A lot of people don't know it. Some people do. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually willing to wager it's more popular than I think it is. But whenever I've mentioned it to people, they seem to have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So this was a book. This was published by Archaea. Um, you know, we're talking like 2012 is like okay. when the first book came out. Listeners, I, I I hope if you're listening in the car and you're driving, don't do this. But if you're just like sitting on like, you know, transit or, or your home or something, just Google search, whatever, Cursed Pirate Girl art. And just look at the artwork that's in this book, because it it is literally the kind of phenomenon where the artwork speaks for itself. The artwork of Jeremy Bastian speaks for itself for Cursed Pirate Girl. You know what this reminds me of? Yeah. And this is also another another series, uh, another property that Wes Anderson would absolutely own. Yeah. Have you ever seen the old school classic Alice in Wonderland art from like as, uh, Mike, as you well know, I collect Alice in Wonderland books. Yes, so, exactly. Yes. So this art style kind of reminds me of that. Like I had like a leather bound Alice in Wonderland yep. as a kid. I still have it as a kid. And it had some of that old art in that. And that's like in this in this realm. And I actually think Wes Anderson would probably do great Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, this Cursed Pirate Girl looks awesome. This looks like yes. something that's really cool and so, weird yeah. and dark and twisted. It is. So he does really, really intricate, all hand-drawn line work. There's no color. It's black and white. It's super finely detailed. And like, if you look at any picture, you could see all the individual scratches and hash marks. I mean, it probably takes him, I don't know, a week 
or more to do one page of this book. It's in- incredibly labor intensive. That's a labor of love. And the um, the art style is somewhere between what Mike just mentioned, what uh, we're talking about in terms of the old Alice in Wonderland art, but also like kind of like tattoo art. A yeah. Bit. Yeah. A little bit. And like then sailor also just, tattoo art. Yeah. And then just also just like gorgeous, traditional, traditional illustration. So really, really beautiful. But like if you have found Mike, I don't know what you're looking at right now on your screen, but like if you found any one of like his double page spreads where like they open up and like you could stare at one of these pages for like a week and still not see everything that he's drawn into it. It's incredibly detailed. And it made me think of Wes Anderson because Wes Anderson is famous for this attention to background detail and the intricacy and the beauty of the design. And I thought uh, Jeremy Bastian's work in Curse Pirate Girl would really appeal to the side of Wes Anderson that is more the artist as, as well as the director. Because now the story of Pur- Curse Pirate Girl is really cool. It is exactly what you think it might be. It's it's a cursed pirate girl. She has one eye. She's got a patch on her eye. And she is searching the Omerta Sea. The Omerta Sea is like the mythical sea for her lost uh, famous pirate father, who she does not believe is dead. And on her quest, she meets... All kinds of weird, colorful pirates, some dead, some alive. She meets some ghosts. She meets insane monsters and machinations and creations. And the whole thing takes place in like the 1720s, like the the golden age of piracy, right? Mm -hmm. So it's gorgeous. And I just thought, what an interesting piece this would be for stop motion. Yeah, It would be a huge undertaking, but it is a property that is like rife for options. I don't know that a production company has optioned this. And I don't know that the right person will ever hear my voice, but this is something that should be made because it's something that not a lot of people have paid attention to. At this point, there are, I think, four volumes of this graphic novel out. Um, and obviously, the labor inten- uh, intensity of this is, is huge, labor intensiveness. So I don't know when it will be finished, but the grandeur of it now, even just telling one of these stories would be huge. Yeah, I think this 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 looks great. This looks like something I would definitely want to read and experience and share with other people. And yeah, it looks like this and you could have your Decemberist album with this, too. Well, that's the other part, right? So you listen to December songs like Mariner's Revenge song or Shanti for Arthusa or something like that. And and you look at an image of Curse Pirate Girl and you're like, there's something here. Yeah, we could really do something with this. So if Anderson didn't want to go the more popular Peter and the Starcatcher or Peter Pan route, he could say, Here's this obscure property. Almost no one's heard of it. I can do my own thing with it and talk about having Wes Anderson themes. I mean, this is a a cute little cursed pirate girl. <laughs> she's depressed as hell, but she's a spitfire. She's almost like a Wes Anderson character already. She's looking for her lost fathers. There's your, you know, parental abandonment, abandonment issues. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not as keen as Peter Pan in that sense, but still keen. You would still get the nautical sense of things. I think this would be. I think this would be a, a home run hit film for Wes Anderson's Cursed Pirate Girl, I think would be huge. And it looks like it has a lot of narration and a lot. And, you know, I'm not sure how much dialogue there is, but you could totally just turn this into something. And sure. I think and like like Fantastic yes. Mr. Fox, it sort of rides that line between is this for adults? Is it for kids? It's it's yeah. really good like that. No, it's good. And that's that's where Wes Anderson really shines with his animated stuff, where he finds that really nice line between you know, something being for kids and something being for adults. And I think when animation is its best, it's for both. Yeah, absolutely. It's for both. Both sides can really take away something from that. But 
dude, that's an awesome series of pitches. And we actually work together on one without working together on one. This is nice. That's it's so wild. Like, I guess that's like a testament to just how well we know each other. That I know. We're like, oh, Wes Anderson, Peter Pan, of course. Peter Pan. Yeah. Why? <laughs> why would you say anyone else at this point? Right. But uh, that's awesome, dude. I really like those pitches. And I have to just give you a nice resounding. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I think, you know, with the, the cursed pirate girl thing, it does speak to kind of what you just said, which is like the best animation should be for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, an adult should be able to sit down with a kid's movie and still get something out of that, which I know is a lot to ask. But that is kind of what Disney Pixar has been specializing in for a long time. That's yeah. like when I see kids watching certain things that are just sort of stupid, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I immediately know like this is a thing of low quality that writers did not intend for like everyone to watch. I, I um, really I also th- I also think that the pedigree of animation needs to be understood. And I think that the quality of animation needs to be appreciated. We I think as a society, the fact that people see something that's animated and immediately dismiss it as, oh, well, this is just stupid stuff for kids is also very it's difficult. It's difficult yeah. to, you know, kind of be okay with that and to kind of like let that sit. Like animation should be for everyone. It shouldn't just be for children, but it also, you know, it can just be for children or it can just be for adults, but we shouldn't look at things animated and just be like, ah, that's kids garbage, but it's not. Yeah. And I think something like this could really, hopefully more people go out and read Curse Pyracle because I think this could be something that's great, especially since no one's touched it. It, it rules and it's um it's it's definitely a lesser known property i actually my hope is that someone contacts us after we we have said this on air and it's just like oh i love curse by girl because I, yeah. I i've almost never encountered anyone else who's read it yeah that's true that's that would be awesome that would be really really cool uh, so hey if you've read it out there uh matey uh yeah, kind of let us let us know but i i thought you know uh, we seem to have similar ideas in terms of like wes's lens being able to take on uh, perhaps a musical endeavor as well which he yeah. has not really done He's never done anything like that, but music has always been a very important part of his movies, huge, so. huge. And actually, I love listening to just the soundtracks of his stuff are, are yeah. great. Like the, the Desplat music he uses is uh, incredible. Incredible. Very, very good stuff. All right, dude. Well, thank you for that. That was a very nice trip down this uh, nice November road with plenty of autumn leaves and pumpkins. <laughs> and, you know, you could almost smell the uh, roasting turkey in the air and a little bit of the salt sea. Yeah, in a little, it's a nice seaside stroll in November. It's a, it's a sea salted turkey. That's right. We we put it out in the ocean. We, we put, put it, it in a brine. Yeah, <laughs> love a good brine. <laughs> so everyone, thank you so much for listening to this rather Wes Anderson filled episode of How About This. We have to once again thank the fantastic Mr. Jordan Hugh. Thank you, and thank you to the grand. Michael Staub Hotel. That one didn't work as well as I thought that was going to go. I'll take it. The Michael Staub Limited. That's right. Even better. Limited, you know, it's it's not unlimited. It's limited. It's limited. There's there's only so much. Is there a difference between something that's given the unlimited or the limited... Like well, I guess Moniker, if, no. if, if you're a train, I don't, I don't know. If, that's comics always do that too. Yeah, exactly. It's like Spider-Man Unlimited. And then it ends. And then it ends. <laughs> and, then, and, then they'll, and then they'll be like, well, then there's Spider-Man Limited. It's like, which yes. one is more special? I don't know. I don't know. But there's, thank you so much. In the me. end, in the end, Mike, everything is limited. There's in your the Wes end. Anderson. There's your Wes Anderson. Wow. 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 All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time with our next episode, which I think when we come back, we're, we're getting into uh, a galaxy far, far away. Is that true? Oh, my God. Yes. Star Wars. The holiday Star Wars special is upon us. Four episodes of Star Wars. 
Oh God, I can't believe we we agreed why, to this. Why did we agree to this? This is a summer plan. This is a plan made in the summer that's just gonna. It's not gonna sit well. This ain't gonna go well. It's gonna be a wacky ride. I'm gonna tell you right now. We're talking about Star Wars next, and I don't have a good feeling about this. Wow. Thank you for that trip down memory lane as Jordan and I discussed Wes Anderson and had very similar ideas on what we would like to see him make in the future. We couldn't have guessed that both of us would have gone the Peter Pan route with this episode, but I'm actually really glad we did because that means that it's going to happen sometime out there in the future. Wes Anderson is going to get his hipster hands all over one of the most beloved children's stories of all time and give us a very beautiful and pop-up book style approach for his own version of Peter Pan somewhere down the line. When you see it in 10 years, you're going to say, you know, Mike and Jordan were right about that. And you know what else we're right about? We are right about you liking, subscribing, leaving comments on our posts, rating our podcast, and sharing it with your friends. Because every time you do something like that, it makes our show that much more visible. And the more listeners we get on this show, the more ideas we get from you out there, the better this show can become. So once again, thank you. Have a wonderful holiday season and we will see you in a few weeks with Star Wars. Yes, we've done this to ourselves and it was a bad idea, but we'll see you for Star Wars and thank you for listening to Wes Anderson.